Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. My name is Miss Minig, a drag queen and guest presenter for this episode. Today I'm heading to Smallhouse Place in the Kentish countryside, best known as the home of a celebrated Victorian actress. But I'll be heading out into the garden to a barn and working theatre. There I'll be exploring the history of drag and the stages links to the LGBTQ plus community. And I'll be putting on a special performance of my own. In a nutshell, drag will typically include exploring gender through performance for the purposes of entertainment. Performers come in all shapes and sizes. There are drag queens like me, drag kings and drag things. The term drag is a bit of a mystery. One of the most popular ideas is that male performers performed as women back in Shakespeare's day and that the robes they wore would drag on the stage floor. Another theory is that it's a combination of the two words grand and rag used to refer to the costumes performers wear. I wouldn't say there's anything particularly grand in my wardrobe, but they're definitely not rags. Drag performances have been around for centuries all across the world, with each country having its own style and story to tell. In the UK, drag has been one of the mainstays of light British entertainment, on the stage, at the cinema and on TV. As a nation, we have produced some of the greats, like Lily Savage and Danny LaRue. There have been sketches by the two Ronnies, a myriad of gender swaps in Blackadder, and primetime shows like the UK version of RuPaul's Drag Race. And if you're still thinking you've not seen drag, let me tell you. Oh, yes, you have. If you've been to a panto, then you've essentially seen drag. And while today TV or streaming are the easiest way to see drag, live performances happen up and down the country, in towns and cities, in theatres, bars and clubs, whether that's traditional cabaret or as part of a drag bingo or drag brunch event. At my home in Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, one of the regular places I grow the stage is an old 17th century barn in the town centre. So in an attempt to sprinkle a little bit of drag glitter across the boards in a more rural setting, I'm heading to the theatre in the barn at Smallhead Place in the Kent countryside. Yeah, so when I read about a National Trust Theatre, this is not what I had in mind at all. This is a much older, smaller building than I expected, but it is very interesting. I just can't imagine doing a drag show here. Very out of the way. It's quite pretty, though. Smallhouse Place is a cosy Tudor cottage just off the main road between the towns of Tenterden and Rye, and once home to the actress Ellen Terry and her daughter Edie Craig. Today I'm here to meet Susanna, who's going to tell me more about the showbiz history behind its doors. Hi, Hi. Misty. How are Hi. you? I'm good, nice how are you? you? I'm Susanna Mayer, I'm the Senior House and Collections Officer here, so Amazing. welcome to Smallhide. Thank you. Right, come through this way into the theatre then. Fabulous. Oh wow. It's quite a surprise, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very deep stage. It takes yeah. up a lot of space. Yeah, yeah, it takes up most of the building, in fact. Yeah. To begin with, I think the, the stage was pretty much 1930s trestle tables and there were benches and the stage was lit with, with car headlights. It's still quite basic, but it's a fantastic performance space. You're going to use it? I am, yes. Yeah. It, looks, it looks like it's been here for a very long time. It's not something where I typically... Do drag. It's not something where you would expect drag to be, I believe, no. either. Um, especially our kind of drag, which is very modern and very current. This isn't, but again, not in a rude way. Maybe that's just the, the building, because Edie Craig did some really experimental theatre mm. on this stage. So they do some things that the audience would find really difficult sometimes, and very experimental. So, you know... Perhaps it's the most perfect space to maybe, do a, do a drag show, a modern drag is. show. Yeah. Maybe it just is. It's easy to picture drag as it is today. 
but its roots go much further back. In Shakespeare's time, it was forbidden for women to be involved in stage performance, which meant men and boys, or seniors and juniors as they were known, were called upon to play all the female parts. While this was done out of necessity, it opened the doors for performers to have total freedom of expression. This period, beginning in the 16th century, is seen as a pivotal moment in the history of drag. There's a full range of different parts for boys to play as women, and we know from eyewitness reports of performances that they were wholly believed. So if you get a letter, say, written by somebody who'd seen a play like Othello, um, there's somebody in 1610, he writes a letter about seeing Othello and he talks about how good Desdemona was and he consistently describes her as she. And he would absolutely have known that Desdemona was really being played by a boy. I'm Dr Sophie Duncan and I'm a research fellow at Magdalen College, Oxford. Shakespeare remains the cultural constant of the British theatre. In Shakespeare plays, quite often our heroine dresses up as a boy for reasons of expedience or safety or adventure. We don't know what women of the time thought in terms of their non-participation in the theatre. We know that when in 1660, so after the English Civil War, when Charles II is crowned king and immediately sets up indoor theatres and gives his patronage to them, actresses do well very quickly. I think that the opportunities for gender play and disguise and self-expression that come with all the different forms of cross-dressing that, that happen in theatre, particularly British theatre, have probably always been very important to people in the LGBTQ community. In Ellen Terry's time at Small Hive, when you look at the kind of creative and personal networks that her daughter and her partners were part of, Ellen Terry herself was a real icon for queer women. After hearing more about Ellen Terry and seeing the theatre, Susanna offered to take me into the house to find out more about the previous occupants, Ellen and Edie. The reason that the National Trust have this house is because it was the home of the great actress Ellen Terry. She was one of the most famous, celebrated, adored celebrities of her time. And she was at the height of her fame in about the 1880s, hugely high earning with a really busy professional life. So she bought this house in 1899 to get away from London. She died here in 1928. And her daughter Edie, she created this museum as a kind of shrine in honour of her mother. What we've got stuffed into this beautiful Tudor building is one woman's lifetime collection, carefully curated by her daughter. And there is so much in here. We have got a huge collection, you know, everything from chipped plates through to great grand jewels and wonderful costumes. So it is like when your grandma dies. Those jewels might go missing, just to warn you. I am a drag queen. Yeah, well, I'm not going to let you near them. I might show you the costumes if you're lucky. There's some great shoes. Oh. Yeah, size six. I'm sure I could squeeze in. We'll try. (laughs) Edie Craig was an influential theatre maker herself. She lived in a trio with two other women at Small High Place. And the women's private lives were intrinsically linked with the creative work they did there. So you mentioned that there were three people next door. How did that work? What was the living arrangement? So Edie Craig, Ellen Terry's daughter, lived next door in the priest house with her partner, Chris Sinjin. And in about 1916, they were joined by Claire Atwood, known as Tony. They were all lesbians. How that worked for them, we don't really know. Edie always referred to them as her family, so it had that sort of domestic feel. They made jam. They lived together in a kind of creative harmony, really. This was their country place. Right. And I think it was somewhere they could absolutely be themselves. 
they were constantly putting on plays in the theatre and Claire Atwood would be creating props. Chris Sinjin would be translating something from German and Edie would be conducting the whole affair. I did speak to a very old lady who lives in the village up the road who remembers them coming to her dad's shop to buy cigarettes. And I said, what, you know, what did you make of them? She said, oh, yeah, we just thought they were a bit eccentric. They always wore men's clothes. So I think people really respected them. As well as cross-dressing in the everyday, the trio would have also done so as part of their performances in the theatre. For them, both creatively and personally, clothing was genderless. Whether that was in the clothes they wore to the shops or the costumes they were wearing on the stage. There's a little exhibition at the top of the garden which looks at how Edie and Tony and Chris lived. But whilst we're in the house, if you want to have a look at the costumes first, you Absolutely. can do that. Absolutely, yes, of course, okay. let's do it. Susanna begins guiding me around this beautiful house, a wonky property with little trinkets hidden around every corner. So, from the top of the stairs, we'll just come in here, which is our costume room. Now, we've got over 200 costumes in storage here at Small High Place. Melanie Terry was such a celebrity and was earning so much money that her costumes became couture. Edie was a costumier. She didn't produce costumes like this. She was much more likely to tie four scarves together and make some fabulous outfit. But she always managed her mum's costume. So one of the reasons they survive as well is because Edie looked after them. The rhinestones they're using on this here are not too dissimilar to what I would wear in my jewellery. So it's quite interesting to think that this was, what, 1800s? And it's the same kind of thing. Obviously, it looks very different now, but it's, it's a lot more intricate than the the jewellery and the shiny things that I would wear, but it's, it's but interesting you, to see similarities. It's, and the dress itself is a very shiny thing because it has all these iridescent beetle wings sewn on it. So when you step onto the stage in a costume like that, everything's sparkling off you. And, you know, so this was kind of Victorian attempt at real bling. It feels, to me, it feels draggy. I know it sounds a bit silly, but to me that looks like drag. That, that, that's, that's how I envision my kind of drag. It's very costumey, it's very sparkly, it's very elegant, it's very properly done up. And to me, that looks like a drag costume that I would actually wear. I'd like <laughs> to see you in it. I've got, a, actually, I've, got a, I've got a, we've got a copy here, perhaps you'd like to slip I will, into uh, later. borrow it, perhaps, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is absolutely so much to see in here. Yeah, I think sometimes people visit here and they think they're going to whip round in three quarters of an hour and they're still here three hours later. It's one of those. But we've got something really special in the garden that I'm going to show you now. Cool, let's go for it. Nestled amongst this beautiful English country garden is a little shed, a place for creativity to blossom. And this little writing hut over here, well, I call it the writing hut because... Chris used to write in it, but I think they actually called it her smoking hut at the time. She was a chain smoker. And it was kind of her creative space. So, in we come. Oh, look, this is interesting, right? Esther Tilly. So she was a male impersonator who was really big in the 1900s. There was a lot of male impersonators. Not drag kings, I guess you'd call them that. Same thing, yeah. same thing. And they were hugely popular. There she is as well, look, dressed as a police constable. So it is essentially drag? Yes. Has there ever been drag here at all at the theatre? Uh, not as far as I know, although there may have been pantomimes, of course. So the performance that we're due to do here, uh, that would be the first drag show here at the theatre, is yeah, that correct? definitely. One of the ways in which to connect drag's early roots with one of the performances we know today is through pantomime. In fact, the traditional Christmas panto has a lot more about British society than you might think. 
If we look at things like RuPaul's Drag Race, lip syncing as a big aspect of that, do we see that in pantomime? Not much. But do we see the sequence and the glamour and the over-the-topness of costuming and aesthetics? Yes. Does all drag do that? No. I'm Simon Sladen, Senior Curator of Modern and Contemporary Theatre and Performance at the Victoria and Albert Museum. If you look at the history of pantomime and the studies of pantomime, it is obsessed with gender. I mean, absolutely obsessed. And if you ask people to define what a pantomime is, they will absolutely say it's where boys play girls, girls play boys. It's this topsy-turvy realm. And it opens up an opportunity for thinking about fluidity between genders and interpretation. The dame is there, not really to provide any sense of narrative, but for the comedy. Licence to play with the audience, to interact with the audience. I mean, arguably, you could take them out of many of the shows and the narrative wouldn't suffer, but it would be rather bland. It's a family show, but obviously the, the joy of a double entendre is that some people will understand it and some won't. Also is there for a great aesthetic, you know, costumes become more and more elaborate, particularly in the mid-20th century. You know, the dame has the most extravagant costumes. We can certainly track tastes and trends through the dame's costuming. I'm thinking of examples such as when the punk era, the ugly sisters often had one of their changes where they would be punks, which obviously had a great affinity to contemporary discourse around society. So it's interesting to think about those relationships and how they are perceived. And of course, the pantomime dame and the principal boy are two of the characters which may have gone through the most evolution as society's uh, ideas, thoughts, relationship with gender and sexuality changes. Today, a female principal boy can be seen in probably 6 to 8% of pantomimes, as opposed to almost 100% in that Victorian era. Well, thank you so much for showing me around. I'm absolutely raring to go. I'm going to have to call up my drag partner and uh, get her down here. And we'll uh, start planning ideas and do a show here. Can't wait. Mm. Very nice. Oh, yeah. Turn it around. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's, it's stunning. Absolutely stunning. It's a really, really deep stage as well. There's plenty of space. Your signal must be shocking where you are. It is. It isn't great. So, uh, right, I'll message you then and I'll speak to you in a bit. Okay, speak to you soon. Right. The visit to Small High's place left me feeling completely inspired. And the idea of taking to the stage and putting on a show for everyone to enjoy is what really excites me about drag. Growing up, I never really saw myself as a performer. Not in drag, not in panto, not on stage at all. But I loved the glitz and the glamour that came with it. I remember as a young boy going to formal events like weddings and feeling really restricted on what I was allowed to wear, when women could wear a variety of colours and accessories. When I discovered drag, I realised that this was the opportunity I needed as a kid to fully express myself. In the world of drag, there are hundreds of different styles and ways of performing. It might involve singing, dancing, lip syncing, or some comedy. My style is a little bit more modern, and my drag partner, Mr. Mina McCool, is a little bit more of the traditional old-school British type. Both of these styles themselves have gone through lots of changes. But looking further back, drag performance has evolved far beyond Shakespeare's time. And who knows what it might look like centuries from now. It's now a few months on since I first visited. It's show day and nerves are beginning to set in as the crowd begins to arrive for our sold-out event. 
Uh, I literally just need to get into my dress. Okay. Um, I need to put my wig down. Do you like my hair? Quarter past. Can you necklace me up, please? It's so extra and debris. Do you mind zipping up my shoes for me? I'm so sorry, I just can't bend over. Okay, am I good? Do I head to toe? Am I right? Gorgeous. I don't need a necklace, do I? Do I need to glue here? I said that I needed to, didn't I? Yeah. I'm very nervous, I'll be honest. I'm really, really nervous. I think it's just complete unknown. Like, we're not in our comfort zone. Like, it's a very different setting, very different place. We don't know how they're going to react to it. You know, I think a lot of people here are like first time drag attendees so they might not know what to expect which could be good or bad you know there's there's pros and cons to that we'll see i mean the aim is for everyone to have a really good time <laughs> so remember you're doing the solo first yeah and then we're doing dancing game yeah <coughs> okay oh this is gonna be terrifying i'm so scared i've never never gotten this scared this show it's like this is crazy all right, <coughs> let's do this. Hello! Hello. I'm sorry. Let's introduce ourselves. My name is Mr. Dominique. Hold for applause. Yeah. And I am Demina McCall. Yeah. This is like, I can see the front row. Hi. Yeah. Right. Yeah. about. It's just darkness after that. We can't see you. Pippi Longstocking in the front. Hello. Can we get the lights up for a second, Tom? Oh, God. No, turn them off, turn them off, turn them off, turn them off. Are they still there? Hold on, do you want to hide behind this? Security. Security. Oh. Security. Oh, no, she didn't. Oh, no, she didn't. And we were saying, sort of, if you think of Shakespeare and all those things, it was always terribly bawdy, lots of audience participation, toing and froing. I think it was perfect for her. I think it was absolutely perfect. Yeah, I loved it. It was fantastic. I hope they have more of them, actually. Yeah, it's really fun. Well, I've been here many times and seen lots of different things and nothing quite like this evening. Um, so, and I was really surprised to see it on the listing for a small high place, um, but was really excited to come and it was really good fun. And it's just lovely to have it on our doorstep and it's brilliant. I think they should do more of it. I was invited down here back in April to look around and find out all the history about this place. So to be on this stage is just incredible. There's so much history in this place. This barn has been here for like 500 years and now we've ruined all of that history tonight. We've ruined it. Performing at Small Heads Place was incredibly fun, and exploring the history of drag has been a real rollercoaster of emotions. And believe me, there is still so much more to explore and find out. I'd encourage everybody to get out and see as many shows as you can. If going to a drag show has been on your bucket list for a while, go and watch one. Drag is for everyone, and I personally cannot wait to welcome you to a show soon. Lots of love, Huns. My name's been Mr. Monique. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the National Trust podcast. We've reached the end of season seven, but do look out for some special episodes between now and when season eight begins. The best way to do that is by following or subscribing on your favourite podcast app 
and sharing a special episode with a friend. All of our past episodes and more from our mini-series can be found at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. And if you have the time, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review or send a message to podcasts at nationaltrust.org.uk. We'll be back soon with new adventures, but until then, take care and goodbye.